uh, it is well, the psalm. Um, if you know the story behind it, it's really incredible. Um, a man was bringing his family over from uh, was bringing his family over from uh, England into the New World, and as he was doing so, his, some of his family got sick. I believe it was his wife and daughter that passed away. And in, in the deepest torment that he faced, he penned the words, it is well with my soul. Um, yeah, which is where we're, where, where we're going this morning, what we're going to be talking about. So um, I'll explain that in a little bit. Don't worry, it'll make sense. I'm not just rambling on here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 91. Uh, and it's, it's an incredible psalm. It talks about these amazing promises that God has in store for us and that, that he describes for us. But if we misunderstand Psalm 91, we can get our theology pretty bad. Uh, so hopefully this morning I don't do a bad job of this. I can, I can explain it or, or we can walk through it together well. Now, the book of Psalms wasn't just some hymn book that all the Israelites carried around, you know, like their extra Bible or something. Um, it, was, it was a a piece of art, uh, a collection of psalms and poems that the Israelites composed actually after they were um, taken on, off, off captive to uh, Babylon by the king. And it was actually a compilation of all these different songs throughout their history. So some of them were hundreds of years old, written by Moses. Um, some of them were written by David, about a third of them, or about half of them. Uh, and about a third of them, we don't really know who wrote them, but uh, over the course of history, the Israelites composed these and made it into the book of Psalms for us. So it was, it was an historic book for them, one that talked about their past, where they had been, uh, you know, the stories and songs of Moses, uh, the sons of Asaph, uh, or, sorry, the uh, Asaph and the sons of, uh, I forget what his name is right now, but you can look at the, the titles in there, and each psalm has its heading underneath. But it, it, there's an order. What I'm trying to say is there's an order to the book of Psalms. It's divided into five different books. So if you look at Psalm 1, it'll say book 1. Uh, psalm 90, right before that, it'll say book 4. And, and there's, there's a purpose behind this. The Israel, Israelites, uh, they collected this and compiled this book for a specific reason. So uh, if you look to the end of the book of Psalms, actually, Psalms 146 through 150, all five of them begin and end with the, the command to praise God, hallelujah, uh, the words we read. And, and so there's this order to the book of Psalms that's not just a haphazard collection of all these songs. There's a reason that it's ordered the way it is. So some of these psalms um, reference each other, which is actually why I'm talking about this. Psalm 90 and 91 reference each other quite a bit. Now, if you're familiar with them, they're quite opposite. So there's a, there's a purpose behind that. Uh, psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses, and it's a very solemn song. It talks about the, the sin of the Israelites and asking, repenting, asking for forgiveness from God because of the mistakes they have made. And, and it also talks about the wrath that God poured out on Israel. So we have Psalm 90, and then we've got Psalm 91, where uh, we read about the incredible blessings of how God protects, how he, how he heals and rescues, how he forgives his people um, in, in all of our mistakes and how he protects us from all of the evil in this world that we face. So we have these two psalms. They're back-to-back. They reference each other. They have all these overlapping, connecting points, but they're opposite. One says, God, why have you forsaken us? It's this cry. It's this uh, relent, God, from your wrath. And then Psalm 91 is, is, God, we thank you for all these blessings that you've given to us for protecting us. So 
um, probably a bad example, but it's kind of like yin and yang, where we have, uh, you know, kind of the same truth in opposite. One describes the evils we face in life. One describes how God saves us from those evils. So, we have, we have this enigma, uh, uh, both the truth that God allows us to suffer and the truth that God can protect us from suffering. So that is what we're going to be talking about today. Super duper easy. It should smooth all over and make sense for everyone, right? Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 91. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, the nearly inspired version. Uh, if you have the ESV, it's a little better. I... This is a little off topic, sorry, I'm just tangent here. The, uh, any, any NIVs printed after 1983, I believe it is, they do take out a few verses in your Bible because some people bought the new ownership rights to it. So there is actually some good evidence for not reading the NIV I'm reading right now. Um, we can get another conversation into that. But this is Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my fortress and my refuge, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You can kind of see this... this um, almost overextending promise where we'd like to believe that life's like that. We'd like to, we'd like to recognize that all of life is free from the terror of, of night or the arrow that flies by day or the plague or pestilence, right? But, but that's not the case. We live in a world that's marked by arrows being shot at each other where, where plague rules over and, and the terrors of the night seem to win sometimes and we're filled with fear. And, and these are some incredible promises, but how do, we, how do we understand them properly? Because if we take these words out of context, it'll seem like I just said that everything is fine for the one who dwells with God. Everything's going to be magical and no problems or harm or suffering will ever come upon you. Uh, but we know from other places in the Bible that's not true, right? Luke 21, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Uh, in Second in Timothy, Paul warns us that everyone who lives a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, the, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes uh, warns us that everyone, or sorry, reminds us that the world isn't fair, that there is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. So we, we suffer in this life, if you haven't already realized that. Um, so how do we make sense of this psalm? 
How do we reconcile it with the problems that we're facing? Is any of it true? And if it is, how, how do we understand these promises in light of the suffering that we face in life? Uh, now, the, the opening words and halfway through the psalm, he gives us a little bit of direction here. He says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Every, every promise and every guarantee that is listed in this psalm kind of falls under that heading. It's for the person who dwells with God, who makes them his shelter, or who makes God his shelter. It's all under this condition that we dwell with God, right? Now, David, uh, long before he was ever a king, if you're familiar with the Old Testament stories, um, he was the youngest of his family, and he was, he was put as a shepherd, uh, and we kind of gather from context that he wasn't looked upon well by his family. They kind of forgot about him, left him off to shepherd his own way. Um, and even when, when Samuel came by to anoint all the sons, they forgot about David. Um, so he, instead of being part of his family, had to go out into these lonely mountain plateaus. He had to go into river valleys and find better pastures for the sheep that he had. And he went alone. He... he went in solitude, but in that solitude, he didn't become a bitter person who was angry. He didn't, he didn't rage against his family or God, but instead, he, he chose to sing songs. He, he chose to praise God, to spend time with him. And in taking care of his sheep, he, he recognized God's provision for himself, and he penned the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, you see, David, David spent time with God. It wasn't just spare moments that, you know, David had a bit of extra time and he's like, okay, well, I'll give this to God or I should probably pray. Um, it, it was every moment, no matter what was happening in David's life, he turned towards God. He made God his dwelling place. In moments of victory, when, when he had won battles, when he had conquered, uh, when, when, when things were going well, David turned his attention to God. He wrote Psalm 30, a dedication to the temple, praising God. Uh, when David was being chased by the enemy, when he was being uh, pursued by Saul, his own king, he thought he was going to die, and so he cried out and wrote Psalm 56. Uh, when David was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, he didn't try to justify it or hide it. Instead, he acknowledged his sin and wrote Psalm 51, where we hear the words, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You see, at every moment in David's life, he was willing to turn back towards God, whether, whether he was facing persecution, suffering, uh, joys, success, or even his own sin, he turned towards God. He made God his dwelling place. So my question is, what do we turn to? Or rather, rather, how do you respond in life to the things that get thrown at you? So when you have, when you have spare moments in your day, what are you turning to? When nothing's expected of you, how do you respond to those moments? When, when someone confronts you, how do you respond to them within that? Do you choose to rage against them? Do you choose to turn to God for the help you need? Because, because the, the encouragement that the psalmist gives us here isn't an encouragement to just go hang around the temple. It's not like, you know, have a sleepover at the church and you're good. Dwell within the shelter of the Most High. It's not the physical church building here. Don't get that wrong. Um, dwelling with God isn't about a physical location. In the Old Testament, it was, right? They had the Ark of God, uh, where God's physical location was with the Israelites. Uh, but even here, David isn't, or sorry, the, art, the psalmist isn't saying that we need to go and spend more time beside the Ark or close to it. Uh, he's saying we need to spend time with God. 
You need to have relationship. To seek God earnestly and, and so constantly that it seems like even the places of our lives, like our homes where we rest, are filled with God, where he can walk through and dwell in any part of our lives. Now, in the context of the new covenant, where does God dwell? With us, right? So through the, through the spirit that Jesus sent us, it's relationship. It's all about relationship, right? But most people don't want relationship with God. We, we, we want to figure it out our own way. Or, or sometimes we're just too busy. We don't actually want to have spend time, sit down and pray, uh, read our Bibles. Or, or, or maybe even in the moment, life is just good enough where I don't feel like I have to turn to God. So many, instead of, instead of dwelling with God, we just turn to Him when we need Him, enjoying the occasional approaches instead of habitually dwelling with God. When life gets bad or when we suffer enough, then we turn and pray to God, but... God wants to be so much more than our life raft. Now, God does want us to turn to him in those moments when we are afraid, when we need him. And so he protects us, he helps us, like any loving parent would. But he wants so much more. He wants our desires, he wants our dreams, our goals, our future. He wants our frustrations, our opinions as well. Not so he can just run our lives like some puppet master, right? He's not just someone who wants to control every area of your life so you can do exactly as he says. He's not some commander like that. He wants to give us life. And he wants to guide us. Right? He, he, he knows us. He's created us. And we can trust him in that. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in the 1800s, uh, when he was just recalling the psalm, he said about the shadow of the Almighty, it's an expression which implies great nearness. We must walk very close to a companion if we would have his shadow fall on us. And so this imagery of resting in the shadow of the Almighty, it's, it's about dwelling with God. It's about knowing who he is, coming to him. In verse 4, we, we get a further image of this beauty of God's nearness to us. Uh, he says, he will cover you with his feathers as much, and, and under his wings you will find refuge. It's like a, a mother bird covering her chicks for protection. And so, so God protects us the same way. It's, it's Jesus putting himself in the place to protect us, to save us, right? What I find so amazing about this psalm isn't so much the protection that God offers, but so much as the love that he gives us and that he shows us. That Jesus would put himself in place of the, the danger and the things that we should face ourselves because of our own sin. He protects us, that he bore the pain and the suffering that we were supposed to face. He, he loves us enough to rescue us again and again and again and again. So what do we do in the moments when we suffer and yet we recognize these promises that God has given us? What, what do we do when, when we want to try to believe these promises but we can see in our realities that we are suffering. It feels like we're caught in the fowler's snare. It feels like we've been given over to the deadly pestilence. What is it, what is, when it seems like we're going through more than we can bear, how do we understand these promises? So um, there's three things I think that can help us understand uh, the suffering amidst, amidst God's promises. The first is that suffering doesn't equate to us being abandoned by God. Hebrews 13.5 reminds us that God will never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what you do, no matter what problems or mistakes you make, God's not going to abandon you. 
And if you think you can make a mistake big enough, then you seriously misunderstand God's love and goodness. If we are facing great suffering, it doesn't mean that God has left us. In fact, His love for us is almost more for us when we are in suffering. He's just as much with us. In the book of Genesis, there's, there's a man named Joseph who uh, he was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, and he was wrongly accused after he was uh, enslaved and was thrown in the king's prison, which wasn't such a great place. Uh, and, and for this man's story, he was, he was put in prison. He was betrayed by his family and, and um, tormented in these terrible ways and went through great suffering. And it says that in the prison, when, when Joseph was thrown in there, that God was with him. And, and it says that he showed him his kindness and granted Joseph favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now there's kind of a glimpse here we can understand of, the, of, of what it means to find trust in God and his promises when we face suffering. Even in the midst of intense suffering, abandonment, uh, of, of hatred even, God still cared for Joseph. He still took care of his needs. He lovingly watched over him with kindness. So when you face suffering, it's not because God abandoned you. In fact, it's more likely that God's near you if you're facing suffering. It's, it's not God standing far off when you're facing suffering. He's, he's down there in the pit with you. He's standing on the waters, reaching and extending out the hand to raise you back up. So first, we can understand that when we do face suffering, it's not that God has abandoned us. Rather, it's that God is nearer to us. Uh, second, when we face trials or sufferings, we can trust that God is working good and not just, you know, evening out the evil that happens. He, he works good through the bad. In Romans 8, 28, it says this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We're not sure why life seems unfair at times and, and why these bad things seem to happen. We can trust that God is using these for good, though. It means that in this moment, we don't know what God is, is trying to accomplish. We can't see the whole picture. We're not God. But we can trust that he is good, that he is working good through that. In Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, at the end of Joseph's life, after he had gone through all this suffering, uh, he then was put into second in command of all of Egypt, which was a great kingdom at the time. And uh, he, he actually ended up saving not only his life, but thousands of lives and his own family's life as well because of the, the pain that he went through. And after he was reunited with his brothers in, in Genesis chapter 50, he says this to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do, do we understand what that means, that promise right there? We know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. And what was intended to harm, God intends for good. It means that we're untouchable if we dwell with God. It means that we're completely free of the evils in this world. Because when we prosper, we can praise God. And when we suffer, we can trust that God is working good through our suffering. When we're struggling, we trust that he's working it for good. Joseph, when he was accused and thrown into prison, he had no idea in those moments that God would use that pain for good. He had no idea that it would be for the sake of his own family, the saving of their lives and the lives of those around him. He probably sat on the cold prison floor wondering why God had taken him from the warming embrace of his parents, wondering why, why such evil could exist in a world where there was such a good God. 
in those moments, he had no idea what his pain would bring about. He had no idea what God could do through that. In our pain, in our suffering, we don't always know what God can do through it. We don't always know why God is doing what he's doing. But we can trust that it's for good. We can trust that he has a purpose and a reason for it. And if we trust him, if we dwell with him and love him, then we can trust that there's no such evil that can overcome the good that he wants to do. And again, it might be after your life that the good is revealed. You know, in the, in the story of Job, we read that he went through intense suffering. And yeah, he was given back his family again, but I'm sure he had many questions why God allowed him to go through that. We don't always know why God allows us to suffer. Sometimes we find out, sometimes we don't. But we can trust that God will use our pain for good. So second, again, when we face suffering or trials, we can trust that he's working good through that. And third, how do we understand the psalm when we're facing suffering? We can, we can trust that God will rescue us, but that it's not guaranteed. And as we looked at already, the promise of suffering is quite clearly laid out for us. Jesus told us that in this world, we will have trials and suffering and pains. So how do we, how do we reconcile with these promises in Psalm 91 when we experience these pains? Um, it's, it's like the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's this wonderful story in the book of Daniel uh, where, where King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of the Babylonians, had come and overtaken the Israelites as a nation and took them back into enslavement, enslavement in Babylon. And um, while they were there, he created this statue for everyone to worship. And it was this really tall, huge statue. And every time uh, the people played their musical instruments, everyone was called to bow down and worship this image that the king had set up. Uh, but there was three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they told the king that they wouldn't do that. They, they trusted in the Lord their God. And so this is what they said to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, because that was the punishment if they didn't worship the image, they'd be thrown into a hot furnace to die. Um, even if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They were, they were both confident that God could save them from the suffering, but they also didn't shy away from what was in front of them. They also recognized that if God chose not to save them, that he was still good, that he was still in control somehow. We can trust and hold on to the promises of Psalm 91. I'd encourage you to. We have assurance that God can save us from the fowler's snare. We, we have assurance from the deadly plague that invades, from the, from the pestilence. We can overcome the terrors of the night, the, the arrows that our neighbors sling at us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. Because we know that Jesus has and can overcome anything. But even if we are caught in the snare, even if we succumb to the sickness, the deadly plague, we can be sure that we are pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned. We can be assured that we might be struck down, but we're not destroyed because of our Savior. The purpose of the psalm is to encourage us to live in trust and obedience to God as we go forward in life. And I, I like how William Carey put it. Uh, this psalm calls us to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. To expect great things from God, to hold on to his promises, and to attempt great things for God, to go forwards in boldness that he's given us. We have a Savior who promises to keep us safe in the plague, 
Our God promises to set us free from the fear of man and the terrors of disaster. Yes, some will get the plague, but illness is only, is only a good and mysterious form. Losses only enrich us, and every reproach is only seen as an honor to us. Death itself is a gain, which shortens our journey on earth and hastens us to our reward. No evil can happen to the one who dwells with God because it's already overruled by good. Uh, just as, as we close, I want to end with a short story from the life of Spurgeon and, and a little bit of an encouragement as well here. Uh, he, Charles Spurgeon, a uh, uh, famous preacher already mentioned in uh, the 1800s, it was the year 1854, uh, and he wrote these words. When I had scarcely been in London uh, 12 months, the neighborhood which I labored was visited by a sciatic cholera, and it was a stomach issue, and my congregation suffered from its inroads. Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to visit the grave. I gave myself up with youthful ardor to the visitation of the sick, and was sent for from all corners of the district by persons of all ranks and religion. I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. But as God would have it, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window in the Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in good, bold handwriting these words, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. The effect upon my heart was immediate. I, f I went on my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear and evil, and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place those verses in the window, I gratefully acknowledge, and in the remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. I, I love that story when I first read it. It, was it wasn't so much the faith of Spurgeon that stuck out to me, it was the faith of the person who hung the paper in his shop window. It was, it was a simple act of faith. It was a simple act of, of doing something which he thought could bring a little bit of hope, could bring a little bit of joy and love. And it, it gave Spurgeon the encouragement he needed to continue visiting the dying, to care for the poor and the sick, which, which is an incredible thing for us. So not only is there both the encouragement in the story for us to recognize that the littlest things that we do for the kingdom might have a lot bigger impact than we can recognize in, our, in and of ourselves. Because unless this man had a conversation with Spurgeon, he had no idea the effect to which him hanging the newspaper in the window had. But we can go forward in love. We can go forward and trust that God will work through us. If we commit our plans to the Lord, he will establish them. If we can hold to the promises of Psalm 91, I just want to encourage you, uh, you can hang on to these promises now, if life isn't going that way, we don't have to be afraid. If we do end up fearing the night or the, the arrows that fly by, the deadly pestilence and plague, it's easy enough for us to fall into fears. But God's willing to help us out every time. He's willing to draw us back, to bring us out of fear. So we can encourage. We can be light and love to others. We can hang signs in shop windows and we can give and love freely. So you can trust in the Lord's promises. He only asks you to dwell with him. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you that you have made the way for us to find freedom in you from, from every evil that we find ourselves trapped in. Not only that, but God, we thank you that there is no power that can overcome you, that your love is stronger than anything in this world that might try to tear us down, that might try to pull us away from you. We thank you that no matter what happens in this life, the, the mistakes that we make, the traps that we get caught in that others have laid, or, or whether we feel overtaken by the natural ways of this world, God, we thank you that you are in control. Help us to trust. Help us to follow you well. And God, I just ask that you would show each one of us what it would mean to dwell with you this week. We thank you that you are with us and your faithfulness guides us. Father, we thank you for your blessings in these many ways. In your name, amen.